Hello everybody, Ash here. Now what you're about to listen to is an episode originally uploaded to the Ear Read This Patreon page. For the moment, I've paused uploads to and payments from the Patreon as I focus on building the main channel. But if you are a patron, you can still access all the bonus content we have on there for free. And if you'd like to support the channel in the meantime, there's a link in the episode description box below. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this first Patreon-exclusive episode of Ear Read This. First off, an apology. I've been slow out the gate with the Patreon episodes. Uh, this is what was supposed to be the October episode and it's now, um, well, we're now into December, so sorry about that. To make up for it, there'll be two more December Patreon episodes, not about Ovid, but uh, on another writer who we've been drawn to in recent weeks, from whom you can expect vampires, inbreeding and a Christmas murder story. Come the new year, we will settle into a simple once-a-month routine. Thank you in the meantime for your support and patience as we get things started here. Now, Ovid. We've been orbiting Ovid for some time, maybe even from our very first episode. And I've been wondering since then how on earth to tackle the metamorphoses without scumbling it up. Ovid's Metamorphoses is a 15-book verse epic, which tells the history of the world, its gods and humankind. It contains over 200 myths collected from antiquity. It begins when the world was in a state of chaos, an indigested mass, and ends in the poet's own time during the reign of Augustus Caesar at the start of the first century AD. Instead of trying to do one enormous episode on the metamorphoses, I'm going to take it slow and discuss one story at a time, beginning today with the very first story in book one, the creation story. Now, not being a Latinist, I'm going to have to rely on English translations and productions of Ovid, which in the course of reading over the Metamorphoses will feature appearances from people like Chaucer, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Dryden, Pope, all the way up to modern translations by people such as Alan Mandelbaum and Ted Hughes. This series is going to be just as much about Ovid's translators as Ovid himself, and I hope you find the way in which this text has changed shape, emphasis and objective over the centuries as interesting as I do. For each episode, we'll hear how the same story was rendered over the years, but have a translator-in-chief to guide us and be our primary focus. And for the first story, we're going to be in the safe hands of Arthur Golding. Golding's 1567 translation of The Metamorphoses became known as Shakespeare's Ovid, due to how much the playwright pillaged from it. Not only the stories, but Golding's actual poetry too. If Ben Jonson was correct in saying that Shakespeare had small Latin and less Greek, Golding's inadvertent contribution to the drama and poetry of Shakespeare should rank alongside the influence of Holinshed, Marlowe and Chaucer. Ovid begins his metamorphoses with an invocation, declaring his intention, his subject matter and calling on the gods to bless his undertaking. So it seems appropriate to begin with Golding's translation of it. Of shapes transformed to bodies strange, I purpose to entreat. Ye gods vouchsafe, for you are they, wrought this wondrous feat, to further this mine enterprise. And from the world begun, grant that my verse may to my time his course directly run. Before we get to the creation, let's have a brief look at the life of the creator. Ovid was born Publius Ovidius Nasso on the 20th of March, 43 years before the birth of Christ. He was born in Solmo, now called Solmona, to the east of Rome. His family was prosperous, and young Ovid was sent to Rome to study. 
At a precocious age, he published his first book, a book of poetry in the first person about a love affair, followed by a series of monologues from heroines of Greek and Roman mythology. Then came the didactic Ars Amatoria, a guidebook for lovers, including tips on picking up women. This was followed by Remedia Amoris, a companion volume offering advice on how to cope with losing love. Up until 8 AD, Ovid had lived in Rome. For reasons that remain murky, in that year he was exiled to the Black Sea. The only reason Ovid himself gave for his exile was his Carmen et Error, a poem and a mistake. He had been working on the Metamorphoses from around the year 1, and it was published in the same year as his exile, 8 AD. It would have been printed by hand on a papyrus scroll. The reader held this with two wooden rods. From the left-hand rod, you unrolled the papyrus onto the right, leaving a page in between. Publishers were also distributors, controlling the printing and the collection of sales, so the authors were at their mercy. The later Roman poet Marshall said, My book is thumbed by our soldiers posted overseas, and even in Britain people quote my words. What's the point? I don't make a penny from it. The classical Greek literature that the Romans took inspiration from would have been composed and consumed out loud, performed traditionally with musical accompaniment. By Ovid's time, Romans were reading for pleasure and in private. 10,000 out of a million Romans were literate. Oratory and rhetoric remained essential skills, and poetry that was intended to be read privately retained not only the rhythms of oral literature, but their didactic quality too. People ostensibly read for instruction. Horace's opinion that poetry must be dulce et utile, enjoyable and instructive, was the guiding principle. Though Ovid's popularity was no doubt down to his ability as an entertainer, his work still had the posture of being instructional. The Metamorphoses would become hugely popular for its eroticism, its humour, and the sheer range of the stories in it, yet still considered educational in its collating of antique mythologies. We might expect the history of literature as it approaches us from classical times to bend somewhat towards the dulce, the entertaining, and away from the utile, the instructive. But following Ovid's death, the reverse was true. In the 4th century, Lactantius Placidus stripped Ovid's verses of their wit and sparkle and kept only the bare fact of the stories to use as instructional schoolbooks. Ovid never returned to Rome, dying in exile around 10 years after the publication of the Metamorphoses. Given that Augustus supposedly banned his works after exiling him, it seems somewhat miraculous that a book as vast as the Metamorphoses has survived, seemingly complete. This appears to be down to the sheer popularity of his verses and there were records of his poetry and imitations of it scribbled on the walls of Pompeii. Of course, we cannot know what kind of changes Ovid's words underwent during their turbulent voyage, through being outlawed, translated, edited and graffitied over the years down to our times. But that will be one area of interest as we examine different adaptations of Ovid over the centuries. Now, in a normal episode, I'd try and cover the history of composition and provide an overview of the whole work, uh, but since I'm just focusing on 88 lines out of almost 12,000, I'm going to keep it short today. All you need to know for now is that The Metamorphoses is a collection of superstitions and legends from antiquity centred around the theme of transformation. According to Ted Hughes, above all, Ovid was interested in passion, or rather, in what a passion feels like to the one possessed by it. Not just ordinary passion either, but human passion in extremis. Passion where it combusts or levitates or mutates into an experience of the supernatural. Very broadly, the first few books tell stories about the gods, 
The middle section deals with heroes of legend, and the final book tells us of the achievements of real historical men such as Pythagoras and Julius Caesar. In a way, the subject matter of the Metamorphoses was a surprising topic for Ovid to have taken an interest in. As Edward Rand says, Ovid had treated the ancient legends as the invention of lying bards, and was much more preoccupied with writing about contemporary life. However, what had been seen before in his work was a fondness for abrupt shifts in tone and a high number of incidental stories collected under one theme. The model for a collection of Metamorphoses stories had already been used by the Greek Hellenistic poets. An early surviving example is the Ornithogonia, a long poem that recounts myths to do with the metamorphoses of humans into birds. Like Shakespeare after him, Ovid was a diligent scavenger and took stories where he found them. The creation story we'll look at today derives in part from Hesiod's Theogony and resembles not only the book of Genesis in the Christian Bible, but the ancient myths of Mesopotamia as well. Arthur Golding lays out what he thinks of Ovid's intentions in his epistle to his own translation. Four kind of things in this his work the poet doth contain, that nothing under heaven doth I in steadfast state remain, and next that nothing perisheth, but that each substance takes another shape than that it had. Of this two points he makes, the proof by showing through his work the wonderful exchange of gods, men, beasts, and elements to sundry shapes right strange, beginning with the creation of the world, and man of slime, and so proceeding with the turns that happened till his time. Arthur Golding was born in East Anglia in 1536. Details of his youth are scarce, but it seems probable that he was educated at Queen's College, Cambridge. In 1565, he de dedicates a translation of Caesar's commentaries to William Cecil, who was advisor to the Queen Elizabeth I, and two years later, he completes his first full edition of the Metamorphoses, a revised edition following in 1575. By this time, he is married, and despite inheriting some land, he ends up in serious money trouble, landing himself in a debtor's prison by the early 1590s. He died in 1606 and is buried at St Andrew's Church in Belchamp, St Paul. Golding wasn't the first Englishman to translate the Metamorphoses, in fact, by his time, there was a robust tradition which came about in the medieval times of translating Ovid with a moral interpretation. Following in the mode exemplified by Placidus, the Ovid Morilise, or Moralised Ovid, was a 14th century French translation which added to the text of the Metamorphoses more than 60,000 lines of theological commentary. It was written by an anonymous Franciscan friar with the intention of warning his Christian readers against the mistakes made by Ovid's pagan protagonists with the eventual goal, of course, of bringing them to Christ. It is this tradition that Golding inherits and inclines him to make the book as easy to read as possible. He glosses difficult words and expands terse expressions for greater ease of understanding. Diligently literal, Golding has been accused of losing some of the original's music. Ovid, according to Lee T. Percy, wrote long poems by single lines. He loved epigrams and was greatly concerned with the balance of words in a single line. This is what attracted another of his translators, Shakespeare's contemporary and rival playwright Christopher Marlowe. Golding recognised this attraction of Ovid, but didn't attempt to match it in English, saying, Wherein, although for pleasant style I cannot make account, to match mine author, who in that all other doeth surmount, yet, gentle reader, do I trust my travail in this case, may purchase favour in thy sight my doings to embrace. Whatever the shortcomings of Ovid run through for morals, in the light of translators to follow him, 
Golding comes across as modest in the extreme. In his dedication of 1567 to the Earl of Leicester, Golding describes his first four books as my maimed and imperfect translation. Needlessly harsh, but also typical of the fawning and self-deprecation found in many dedications of the time. A couple of decades later, William Shakespeare would dedicate his Rape of Lucrece to the Earl of Southampton, telling him, The warrant of the Earl's honourable disposition is not the worth of my untutored lines. But there is something in the phrase maimed and imperfect that I'm sure any translator has felt the force of in blacker moments at the desk, wrestling a supple and vital text into a language that restricts it like a corset. Whatever Golding thought of his own style, he had esteemed admirers of it, including, as I've mentioned, the writer of The Rape of Lucrece, Shakespeare. Golding's translation of the Metamorphoses became commonly known as Shakespeare's Ovid, and Shakespeare had cause to be grateful to Golding for more than just providing him with a copy of Ovid's stories in English. He pillaged Golding for his lines also. Here's a line from The Tempest. Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, which has its original in Golding. Ye elves of hills, of brooks, of woods alone, of standing lakes and of the night. In The Tempest, that line comes from Prospero in the final act of the play, as he casts aside his magic, which has allowed him to bedim the sun at noontide and set in roaring war the green sea and the azured vault. In other words, to create chaos. And the conversion of chaos into something settled provides us with the very first metamorphosis of Ovid's book. I'm going to read the creation story in full, as Golding has it, breaking off here and there to tell you about variations by other authors and expanding on certain allusions or historical references. Creation. Before the sea and land were made, and heaven that all doth hide, in all the world one onely face of nature did abide, which chaos height, a huge rude heap, and nothing else but even, a heavy lump and clotted clod of seeds together driven, of things at strife among themselves, for want of order due, no sun as yet with lights and beams the shapeless world did view. Ovid's original verse for the Metamorphoses was written in dactylic hexameter, dactylic meaning a foot of one long or stressed syllable, followed by two short syllables, as in the word bargaining, saxophone, or for that matter, dactylic and metrical. The hexameter part indicates that there are six measures of those feet, six times one dactylic foot in a line. If I were to completely ruin that line of Prospero's, by changing it into dactylic hexameter, it would sound a bit like this. Summoning elves of the brooks, standing lakes and the hills, I command you here. Which might give you an idea of why this particular metre hasn't proved very popular among poets writing in English. Golding wrote in iambic heptameter, also known as fourteeners, seven feet of two syllables with that famously Shakespearean stress pattern, before the sea and land were made. It says something about Golding's diligence to note that he turned 12,000 hexameters into 14,000 heptameters or fourteeners, which is relatively light work considering he was losing four syllables with every line, typical of a translator aiming for accuracy and not angling to look stylish. No moon in growing did repair her horns with borrowed light, nor yet the earth amidst the air did hang by wondrous slight. The Roman goddess of the moon is Luna, whose Greek equivalent was Selene. Both are traditionally depicted with horns. 
In his own version of the creation story, Ted Hughes loses the literal horn connection without losing the notion of a moon as a female entity. No moon played her phases in heaven. No earth spun in empty air on her own magnet. Back to Golding. Just paced by her proper weight, nor winding in and out did Amphitrite with her arms embrace the earth about. Amphitrite, goddess of the sea. For where was earth, was sea and air, so was the earth unstable. The air all dark, the sea likewise, to bear a ship unable. You might remember way back in our Midsummer Night's Dream episode that during the Pyramus and Thisbe scene, fourteeners such as Goldings came in for a bit of a ribbing. You can see why here, the peculiar word order the rhythm sometimes forces. So was the earth unstable, the air all dark, the sea likewise to bear a ship unable. It's a bit of a mouthful. Pyramus and Thisbe, incidentally, is a story which Shakespeare took from later on in Ovid's Metamorphoses. No kind of thing had proper shape, but each confounded other, for in one selfsame body strove the hot and cold together. The moist with dry, the soft with hard, the light with things of weight. This state of chaos, referenced earlier and again now, gets rendered by A.D. Melville as warring seeds of ill-joined elements. By Mandelbaum, a heap of seeds that clashed of things mismatched. And by Ted Hughes as a huge agglomeration of upset, a bolus of everything, but as if aborted. This strife did God and nature break, and set in order straight. The earth from heaven, the sea from earth, he parted orderly. And from the thick and foggy air, he took the lightsome sky. Here we have the first metamorphosis, the separation of chaos into elements by a nameless God. Which might sound a bit familiar. According to the King James Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. This earth is then described as being without form and void. Darkness lies upon the face of the deep. The earth is created but has no form, which is a bit of a conundrum. We can only hope the rest of this book will be less open to interpretation. Does the first sentence then mean that God created earth in mind only, and whilst it was without form, mapped it out, then bodied it forth? Or does it mean that the earth was merely somewhat formless, a bit pear-shaped? It was, as far as we are allowed to understand, God's first effort. Either way, from the formlessness and the void and the darkness upon the waves, we get a sense of the Christian creation story beginning in a state of calm, of empty calm. But not so in the Ovidian creation story, where the state of things before divine intervention is this huge rude heap, a rude and indigested mass, a lifeless lump, unfashioned and unframed, as John Dryden has it. What men call chaos, says Mandelbaum, an undigested mass of crude, confused and scumbled elements. Which when he once unfolded had, and severed from the blind, and clodded heap, he setting each from other, did them bind, in endless friendship to agree. The fire most pure and bright, the substance of heaven itself, because it was so light, did mount aloft, and set itself in highest place of all, the second room of right to air, for lightness did befall. The earth more gross drew down with it each weighty kind of matter, and set itself in lowest place. Here in miniature we have a laying down of a kind of hierarchy that will recur throughout the rest of the whole book. Lowly earthy man below the fiery high gods. Interestingly, next we have, Again, the waving water did lastly challenge for his place, the utmost coast and bound, 
of all the compass of the earth to close the steadfast ground. Some of the most enigmatic metamorphoses throughout the book involve people transforming into water. It is an element that later provides an escape from the gods, it's home to shapeshifters, and remains, like the onely face of nature, ever-changing. Now when he in this foresaid wise, what god so ere he was, had broke and into members put this rude, confused mass. Just stop there for a second. Who was this god, you might be thinking? The capital G mysteriously appears and disappears over various translations. In some, such as Golding's, the god is a he. In others, it is a sexless god. God and nature's relationship or oneness seems to be quite indefinite too. In Melville, this strife, a god with nature's blessing solved, whereas Dryden sets them apart. It was God or nature that started separating the chaos into elements. Ted Hughes is a bit more playful. God or some such artist as resourceful. Whatever the exact identity of the god and their relation to gods of other religions, he, she, or they have a strange relationship with the gods we will soon meet. As Richard McKim has pointed out, Ovid posits no identity between the higher nature and either Saturn or Jove. Whoever they are, they now crack on with dividing the world into five zones and stopping the four winds from tearing the world apart. The four winds come with names and we'll spot them easily when they come along, but before that, I want to tell you a little bit about the five zones. It's not clear exactly where the theory of the five zones came from, but it would be much more familiar to Ovid's first readers than it is to us. It crops up in Pythagoras, Aristotle and Parmenides. Whoever it was that first came up with it was well-travelled enough to know that Clement Europe was bordered by a colder region to the north, the Arctic, and a hotter one to the south, the equator. But it then took some nifty scientific thinking to guess the effect would be mirrored. Hence five zones, two cold at either end, two temperate zones on the outside of those, and a hot centre. We'll get to the section describing that shortly. Then first, because in every part the earth should equal be, he made it like a mighty ball in compass as we see. And here and there he cast in seas, to whom he gave a law, to swell with every blast of wind and every stormy floor, and with their waves continually to beat upon the shore of all the earth within their bounds enclosed by them afore. Moreover, springs and mighty meres and lakes he did augment, and flowing streams of crooked brooks in winding banks he pent of which the earth doth drink up some, and some with restless race do seek the sea, where finding scope of larger room and space. Instead of banks, they beat on shores, he did command the plain, and champion grounds to stretch out wide, and valleys to remain. I underneath, and eke the woods to hide them decently, with tender leaves, and stony hills to lift themselves on high." And as two zones do cut the heaven upon the right aside, and other twain upon the left, likewise the same divide, the middle in outrageous heat exceeding all the rest, even so likewise through great foresight to God it seemed best. The earth included in the same should so divided be, as with the number of the heaven her zones might full agree. This particular version of the creation myth, uh, according to Robert Graves, is found only in Ovid, a variation on it was borrowed by the later Greeks from the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. You can see similar division and assignation of elements in those Mesopotamian myths. The gods made the division. Anu went up to the sky and Eliel took the earth for his people. 
the bolt which bars the sea, was assigned to far-sighted Enki. This creation story, along with the Epic of Gilgamesh, could be found on tablets dated back to 17,000 BC. Similarities between the creation story and the book of Genesis, as well as the later story of the flood in the Metamorphoses and the biblical flood, led some to wonder whether the two texts were somehow linked. But according to Lee T. Percy, during the 16th century, the belief that the Metamorphoses were the Bible through a glass darkly began to seem old-fashioned, even faintly ridiculous. Of which the middle zone in heat, the utmost twain in cold, exceed so far that there to dwell no creature dare be bold. Between these two so great extremes, two other zones are fixed, where temperature of heat and cold indifferently is mixed. Now over this doth hang the air, which as it is more flighty than earth or water, so again than fire it is more weighty. There hath he placed mist and clouds, and for to fear men's minds, the thunder and the lightning eke with cold and blustering winds. But yet the maker of the world permitteth not alway the winds to use the air at will. For at this present day, though each from other placed be in sundry coasts aside, the violence of their boisterous blasts things scarcely can abide. They so turmoil as though they would the world in pieces rend. So cruel is those brothers' wrath when that they do contend and therefore, to the morning grey, the realm of Nabathai, to Persis and to other lands and countries that do lie, far underneath the morning star did Eurus take his flight. Likewise, the setting of the sun and shutting in of night belong to Zephyr, and blasts of blustering Boreas reign to Scythia and in other lands set under Charles his wain. And unto Auster doth belong the coast of all the south, who beareth shores and rotten mists continual in his mouth. So here we have the winds. Eurus is the god of the east wind, Zephyr the west, Boreas the north wind, and Auster the south wind. Above all these he set aloft the clear and lightsome sky, without all dregs of earthly filth or grossness utterly. The bounds of things were scarcely yet by him thus pointed out, but that appeared in the heaven, stars glistering, all about, which in the said confused heap had hidden been before, and to the intent with lively things each region for to store. The heavenly soil to gods and stars and planets first he gave, the waters next both fresh and salt he let the fishes have, the subtle air to flickering fowls and birds he hath assigned, the earth to beasts both wild and tame of sundry sort and kind. Just pause there for a second to give you John Dryden's version of this line, which is rather nice. New colonies of birds to people air, and to their oozy beds the finny fish repair. Back to Golding. Howbeit yet of all this wild the creature wanting was, far more divine of nobler mind, which should the residue pass in depth of knowledge, reason, wit, and high capacity, and which of all the residue should the lord and ruler be. Then either he that made the world, and things in order set, of heavenly seed engendered man, or else the earth as yet, young, lusty, fresh, and in her flowers, and parted from the sky, but late before the seed thereof as yet held inwardly. The which, Prometheus, tempering straight with water of the spring, did make in likeness to the gods that govern everything. So Prometheus is doing his traditional um, trick of making man out of new earth and fresh rainwater, but clearly some time has passed because he is modelling them 
on the gods that rule everything. So, so they've obviously established themselves. We're not left with this nameless, faceless creator anymore. And where all other beasts behold the ground with groveling eye, he gave to man a stately look, replete with majesty, and willed him to behold the heaven with countenance cast on high, to mark and understand what things were in the starry sky. In Dryden this comes out as, Thus, whilst the mute creation downward bend their sight, and to their earthly mother tend, man looks aloft, and with erected eyes beholds his own hereditary skies. Last bit of golding here heralds the beginning of mankind. And thus the earth, which late before had neither shape nor hue, did take the noble shape of man, and was transformed new. So there we have it, Ovid's creation story as told by Arthur Golding. That's by no means the last we'll hear from Golding, but next time over on the main channel we'll be looking at the next story of um, book one of the Metamorphoses, which is The Four Ages of Mankind. I'm sure Golding will pop up, but we'll be focusing mainly on that last translator I mentioned, John Dryden. Thank you again, patrons, for your support, um, and sorry for the wait. We'll be back soon. Till then, happy reading. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world.